Good morning. If you want to turn in your Bibles to the book of Jeremiah, we're going to be starting in chapter 42. It's actually not true. We're going to be starting in chapter 39, uh, but we will be focusing on chapters 42 through 44. While you turn to Jeremiah, let's go ahead and open up in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this day. Thank you for sustaining us, uh, waking us up, allowing us to experience today uh, all the the grace that you give us, just keeping us alive. Uh, Thank you for allowing us to gather here this morning. We ask that all the distractions and uh, things we have outside, we could set them uh, aside for this time and and focus entirely on your word. Please help everyone forget all the things that I say that I shouldn't and, and only pay attention to the things that come from you. Uh, and remember those things and allow the, the word of God to change them. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So before we get into chapter 42, I want to give us a little bit of context because there's a lot of cities and names and locations and relationships that are hinted at through these chapters. And we need to go back just a little bit so that we understand what's going on. So starting in chapter 39, we see that the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar besieges Jerusalem. That's verses 1 and 2. It says, In the ninth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army came against Jerusalem and besieged it. In the eleventh year of Zedekiah, in the fourth month, on the ninth day of the month, the city was penetrated. Nebuchadnezzar uh, assigns one of his captains, Nebuzaradan, uh, to take the captives from Judah to Babylon. And he leaves a few uh, of the poor people in Judah. So they take the elites, they take the important people, uh, or who they deem important, and they leave the poor in Judah. In verse 9, it says, Then Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried away captive uh, to Babylon the remnant of the people who remained in the city and those who defected to him with the rest of the people who remained. But Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, left in the land of Judah the poor people who had nothing and gave them vineyards and fields at the same time. Now, Jeremiah was among those taken to Babylon, and Nebuzaradan lets him or gives him the opportunity to return to Judah, who is now, or Judah is now being governed uh, by a man named Gedaliah that Nebuchadnezzar had put in place. We're in chapter 40 now in verse 5. It says, Now while Jeremiah had not yet gone back, Nebuzaradan said, Go back to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, whom the king of Babylon has made governor over the cities of Judah, and dwell with him among the people, or go wherever it seems convenient for you to go. So the captain of the guard gave him rations and a gift and let him go. Then Jeremiah went to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, to Mizpah, and dwelt with him among the people who were left in the land. Now, Gedaliah seems to be, uh, all things considered, a pretty nice guy. He allows people to work the land. Uh, He's not ruling with what seems to be an iron fist. He seems to be uh, a kind enough person. And the Jews hear about this all through the land, and they return uh, back to Judah, back to Mizpah, where uh, Gedaliah is. Uh, Same chapter, verse 7 it says, when all the captains of the armies who were in the fields, they and their men heard that the king of Babylon had made Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, governor in the land, and had committed to him men, women, children, and the poorest of the land who had not been carried away captive to Babylon, 
Then they came to Gedaliah at Mizpah, Ishmael, the son of Nathanian, Johanan, and Jonathan, the sons of Korea, Sareah, the son of uh, Tahamath, the sons of Ephi, uh, the Nedophathite, and Jezaniah, the son of the Machathite, and their men. And then in verse 11, uh, likewise, when all the Jews who were in Moab among the Ammonites in Edom and who were in all the countries heard that the king of Babylon had left a remnant of Judah and that he had set over them Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, then all the Jews returned out of all the places where they had been driven and came to the land of Judah, to Gedaliah at Mizpah, and gathered wine and summer fruit in abundance. But two of those people that were mentioned uh, back in verse 8, Johanan and Ishmael, uh, Johanan hears that Ishmael plans to kill Gedaliah. So he warns him that Ishmael is going to kill him. In verse uh, 13, it says, Moreover, Johanan, the son of Korea, and all the captains of the forces that were in the fields came to Gedaliah at Mizpah and said to him, Do you certainly know that Baalus, the king of the Ammonites, has sent Ishmael, the son of Nethanian, to murder you? But Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, did not believe them. In fact, he, he disbelieves them so strongly that he rebukes him. In verse 16, uh, Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, says to Johanan, you shall not do this thing, for you speak falsely concerning Ishmael. So Johanan had offered to go kill Ishmael. He said, Ishmael is going to come kill you. Let me take care of the problem. Gedaliah says that's not the case. Gedaliah was very wrong. And in verse 2 of the next chapter, Ishmael, the son of Nathaniah, and the ten men who were with him arose and struck Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam the son of Shaphan, with the sword and killed him whom the king of Babylon had made governor over the land. Now, Ishmael actually takes captive uh, those who were under Gedaliah's uh, watch in verse 10. Ishmael carried away the captive uh, or carried away captive all the rest of the people who were in Mizpah, the king's daughters and all the people who remained in Mizpah, whom Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, had committed to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam. And Ishmael, the son of Nathaniah, carried them away captive and departed to go over to the Amorites. So it seems that he was going to take this group back to the king of the Amorites, perhaps uh, to his credit, hopefully. But Johanan catches up to him and recovers the people, takes the people, and they now head to Egypt because they're afraid of Nebuchadnezzar, right? So Nebuchadnezzar sets up Gedaliah to watch over the people in Judah, and they kill him, Right? So reasonably so, they're a little bit nervous now of, well, the king's not going to be too happy with that. We just killed his governor. So let's get out of here. And they plan to go to Egypt. In verse 16 of chapter 41, Johanan, the son of Karia, uh, and all the captains of the forces that were with him took from Mizpah all the rest of the people whom he had recovered from Ishmael, the son of Nathaniah, after he had murdered Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the mighty men of war, the women and the children and the eunuchs whom he had brought back from Gibeon. And they departed and dwelt in the habitation of Chimham, which is near Bethlehem, as they went on their way to Egypt because of the Chaldeans. For they were afraid of them because Ishmael, the son of Nathaniah, had murdered Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, who the king of Babylon had made governor of the land. So there's our background. OK, so we got a lot of names in there. Gedaliah, who was the governor, has been killed by Ishmael. Johanan saves the people and they want to go down to Egypt. Just to give us a little uh, time period context, this is going to be in 586 B.C. that Nebuchadnezzar had invaded, um, which is about 150 years before Nehemiah goes back to rebuild the walls and about 500, uh, 400 years after David has become king. 
which brings us into the text for today, which is starting in chapter 42. And we'll read the first three verses. Now all the captains of the forces, Johanan, the son of Korea, Jezaniah, the son of Hoshai, uh, Hoshea, and all the people from the least to the greatest came near and said to Jeremiah, the prophet, please let our petition be acceptable to you and pray for us to the Lord, your God, for all this remnant, since we are left but a few of many, as you can see, that the Lord, your God, may show us the way in which we should walk and the thing which we should do. What's worth noting and is key from the verses in the chapter preceding is that they went on their way to Egypt. They've already left. They're already going to Egypt. And now they say, oh, I, I guess we'll ask the Lord about it. And they ask Jeremiah to do this. They're already on the way to Egypt and they ask for intercession. And what else do they say? They tell him to ask. They say they say to Jeremiah, pray to the Lord, your God, that the Lord, your God may show us the way in which we should walk and the thing which we should do. They have almost a nervous distance from God. Um, I remember being younger, I would have friends sometimes that would want to to go do some fun activity, but they knew that their parents were angry at them. And so they would tell me, they're like, you, you go ask my parents, right? You go ask them, see if we can do this thing. They like you, right? So go ask them. And so we get this hint here, the people saying, you know, pray to the Lord, your God for us, that he can tell us what to do. And in verse four, Jeremiah says, I have heard. Indeed, I will pray to the Lord, your God concerning according to your words. And it shall be that whatever the Lord answers you, I will declare it to you and I will keep nothing back. So Jeremiah squarely pins this back on them. He says, I will pray to your God. I'm going to say exactly what you said. And I'll tell you exactly what he says to me. So they say to Jeremiah in verse five, let the Lord be a true and faithful witness between us. If we do not do according to everything which the Lord, your God, sends us by you, whether it is pleasing or displeasing, we will obey the voice of the Lord, our God, to whom we send you, that it may be well with us when we obey the voice of the Lord, our God. Okay. So perhaps Jeremiah's willingness to pray for them gives them a little more comfort now. And they say, "Okay, whatever he wants, whether we like it or not, we're going to do it. And they call him their God. But they probably don't hear the thing they want to hear. And we'll see that in these next verses here, starting in verse seven. And it happened after 10 days that the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah and he called Johan and the son of Kariah, all the captains of the forces which were with him. And all the people from the least, even to the greatest, and said to them, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, to whom you sent me to present your petition before him. If you will still remain in this land, stay in Judah, then I will build you and not pull you down. I will plant you and not pluck you up, for I relent concerning the disaster that I brought upon you with the um, rule of the Babylonians. Do not be afraid of the king of Babylon, of whom you are afraid. Do not be afraid of him says the Lord, for I am with you to save you and deliver you from his hand. And I will show you mercy that he may have mercy on you and cause you to return to your own land. But if you say we will not dwell in this land, disobeying the voice of the Lord, your God, saying, no, but we will go to the land of Egypt where we will see no war, nor hear the sound of the trumpet, nor be hungry for bread. And there we will dwell. Then hear now the word of the Lord, O remnant of Judah. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. If you wholly set your faces to enter Egypt, 
and to go and, and go to dwell there, then it shall be that the sword which you feared shall overtake you there in the land of Egypt. And the famine of which you were afraid shall follow close after you there in Egypt, and there you shall die. So shall it be with all the men who set their faces to go to Egypt to dwell there. They shall die by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. And none of them shall remain or escape from that disaster I will bring upon them. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, as my anger and my fury have been poured out on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so will my fury be poured out on you when you enter Egypt. And you shall be an oath, an astonishment, a curse, and a reproach, and you shall see this place no more. The Lord has said concerning you, O remnant of Judah, do not go to Egypt. Know certainly that I have admonished you this day, for you were hypocrites in your hearts when you sent me to the Lord your God, saying, Pray for us to the Lord our God, and according to all that the Lord your God says, so declare to us, and we will do it. And I have this day declared it to you, that you have not obeyed the voice of the Lord your God, or anything which he has sent you by me. Now, therefore, know certainly that you shall die by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence in the place where you desire to go dwell. So Jeremiah brings the word of God. He tells them, you're on the way to Egypt, but if you go there, everything you're trying to run away from, the king of Babylon, is going to happen to you there. If you stay here, God's going to bless you. He's going to take care of you. And he accuses them of hypocrisy in their hearts, right? They were already on the way to Egypt. And so now to ask God, what would you like us to do is a little bit hypocritical that they're about to prove just how hypocritical they are in the next verses. In chapter 43, in verse one, it happened when Jeremiah stopped speaking to all the people, all the words of the Lord, their God, for which the Lord, their God had sent him to them. All these words that Azariah, the son of Hoshea, Johanan, the son of Korea, and all the proud men spoke, saying to Jeremiah, you speak falsely. The Lord, our God, has not sent you to say, do not go to Egypt to dwell there. But Baruch, son of Maria, has sent you against us to deliver us into the hand of the Chaldeans so that they may put us to death or carry us away captive to Babylon. So Johanan, the son of Korea, and all the captains of the forces and all the people would not obey the voice of the Lord to remain in the land of Judah. But Johanan and all the captains of the forces took all the remnant of Judah who had returned to dwell in the land of Judah from all the nations where they had been driven, men, women, children, and the king's daughters, and every person who Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, had left with Gedaliah, uh, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, and Jeremiah the prophet, and Baruch the son of Neriah. So they went to the land of Egypt, for they did not obey the voice of the Lord, and they went as far as Tapanes. So what they do here is they accuse Jeremiah of giving a false prophecy. It's a pretty good excuse, right? When the word of the Lord comes to you to just say, oh, it's not the word of the Lord. Because if it's not the word of the Lord, you don't have to listen to it. So that's their first uh, attempt here is to say, no, that's a false prophecy. You're trying to get us captured uh, and we're going to ignore you. I'm not sure why they asked him in the first place. If they were just going to ignore what he said. But this just demonstrates the hypocrisy that was in their heart. And they proceed to Tapanes. Now, just to give us a quick little idea of what's going on here, up in the very top right corner is where we have Judah, at the, the very start of that green line. Uh, it's Bethlehem, and that's near, uh, what is that, Chimham, near Bethlehem. So up in the top right there is where they ask uh, Jeremiah to go to the Lord for them. He says, don't go to Egypt, and they ignore him, and they head over to Tapanes, which is going to be on the top of the middle by that little white box. So that's where they first go. 
uh, in defiance of the Lord. And then in verse 8, they're on their way, or they're, they're in uh, Tappanies now. And the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah in Tappanies. And he says, take large stones in your hand and hide them in the sight of the men of Judah, in the clay, in the brick courtyard, which is at the entrance to Pharaoh's house in Tappanies. And say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I will send and bring Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and will set his throne above these stones that I have hidden. And he will spread his royal pavilion over them. When he comes, he shall strike the land of Egypt and deliver death to those appointed for death and to captivity, those appointed for captivity and to the sword, those appointed for the sword. I will kindle a fire in the houses of the gods of Egypt and he shall burn them and carry them away captive. And he shall array himself with the land of Egypt as a shepherd puts on his garment and he shall go out from there in peace. He shall also break the sacred pillars of Beth Shemesh that are in the land of Egypt and the houses of the gods of the Egyptians. He shall burn with fire. So remember, they are, they're leaving, they're fleeing Judah so they can get away from the king of Babylon. They're afraid of him. They're afraid of his wrath and the things that he's going to do. And the, the, specifically, they mentioned the things they want to avoid, death and captivity and the sword. And God says, well, the king of Babylon is actually my servant. He's actually, he works for me, right? And he says, Right here, where you guys have settled in Egypt, that's where the king of Babylon is going to set his throne. So not only did you disobey me and uh, the word that I gave to Jeremiah, everything you were trying to avoid is coming to you. And then chapter 44, the word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the Jews who dwell in the land of Egypt, who dwell at Migdol and Tapanes and Noph and in the country of Pathros, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. You have seen all the calamity that I brought on Jerusalem and all the cities of Judah, because they've already been besieged. They've already been broken into. They've already been destroyed. And behold, this day they are a desolation and no one dwells in them because of their wickedness, which they've committed to provoke me to anger in that they went to burn incense and to serve other gods whom they did not know, nor your uh, nor you nor your father's. However, I have sent you all my servants, the prophets, rising early and sending them, saying, Oh, do not do this abominable thing that I hate. But they did not listen or incline their ear to turn from their wickedness, to burn no incense to other gods. So my fury and my anger were poured out and kindled in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. And they are wasted and desolate as it is this day. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the God of Israel, why do you commit this great evil against yourselves to cut off from you man and woman, child and infant out of Judah, leaving none to remain in that you provoke me to wrath with the works of your hands, burning incense to other gods in the land of Egypt where you've gone to dwell, that you may cut yourselves off and be a curse and a reproach among all nations of the earth. So not only are they going to Egypt to avoid what they think will be captivity and sword and pestilence, but they're going there and immediately wholeheartedly jumping into this, this false worship of other gods and burning incense to other gods. Verse 9, have you forgotten the wickedness of your fathers, the wickedness of the kings of Judah, the wickedness of their wives, your own wickedness and the wickedness of your wives, which they committed in the land of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? They have not been humbled to this day 
nor have they feared. They have not walked in my law or in my statutes that I set before you and your fathers. So what he's saying here is, is the problem in, in Judah and Jerusalem was you, was your disobedience, was your rebellion, was your idolatry. And I think the implied suggestion there is, why do you think going to another land and continuing the same practices will do you any better? The punishment that came to you in Judah, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, was my servant. I brought him there. If you, if you move a few miles west, he's going to follow you. The problem is you, not the location and not... Uh, not that you're worshiping uh, or not that God is insufficient, but that you are worshiping false gods. Verse 11 it says, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I will set my face against you for catastrophe and for cutting off all Judah. And I will take the remnant of Judah who have set their faces to go into the land of Egypt to dwell there. And they shall all be consumed and fall in the land of Egypt. They shall be consumed by the sword and by famine. They shall die from the least to the greatest by the sword and by famine. And they shall be an oath, an astonishment, a curse and a reproach. For I will punish those who dwell in the land of Egypt as I have punished Jerusalem by the sword, by famine and by pestilence. So that none of the remnant of Judah who have gone into the land of Egypt to dwell there shall escape or survive lest they return to the land of Judah to which they desire to return and dwell. For none shall return except those who escape. So again, without without even God telling them not to go to Egypt, it's not going to be any escape from Nebuchadnezzar because he's coming to Egypt because he is God's servant. So despite all of these warnings and uh, reminders of all the prophets that he sent, God saying he rises early and sends them prophets over and over Uh, displaying such great patience um, in the face of an unusual degree of rebellion, right? Uh, uh, Typically, I mean, Israel's history is riddled with rebellion, but here to to blatantly defy the word of God is is one of the most absurd displays of rebellion that we see uh, recorded in Scripture. And despite all these warnings, they actually go further into Egypt. So we have them up at the top there by the white box, um, as Tapanese, and they also mention Migdol, which is pretty close, Noph, which is about another halfway down, and Pathros, which is all the way at the bottom. So they've traveled even deeper and further into Egypt. And what do they say? Maybe, maybe they've been convinced now, like good reason, right? Nebuchadnezzar's God's servant. You're going to have the same problems in Egypt. What do they say? Verse 15. Then all the men who knew that their wives had burned incense to other gods with all the women who stood by a great multitude and all the people who dwelt in the land of Egypt in Pathros answered Jeremiah, saying, as for the word that you have spoken to us in the name of the Lord, we will not listen to you, but we will certainly do whatever has gone out of our own mouth to burn incense to the queen of heaven and pour out drink offerings to her as we have done. We and our fathers, our kings and our princes in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. For then we had plenty of food and were well off and saw no trouble. But since we stopped burning incense to the queen of heaven and pouring out drink offerings to her, we have lacked everything and have been consumed by the sword and by famine. So the first time Jeremiah gave them the word of God, they said, that's not a real prophecy. You're a false prophet. 
The second time, they say, we're not going to obey the word of the Lord. So, even more now, rather than a simple a simple uh, denial of the word of God, now they are verbally rejecting the word of God that came from Jeremiah. Uh, and the women also said in verse 19, And when we burned incense to the queen of heaven and poured out drink offerings to her, did we make cakes for her to worship her and pour out drink offerings to her without our husband's permission? Now, that seems like an interesting section where they they seem to say that when they were in false worship, things were going better for them. That may be the case. They may have had a they may have been more well off during that time. But what they're doing is they're trusting in an experience, a moment in time, rather than the word of God given to them. Right. So while we can't say, oh, they were wrong or they were lying, we don't know. It seems that maybe they had a, a pretty good uh, time as far as it looked in the flesh while they were worshiping the Queen of Heaven. But that doesn't, uh, their experience, no one's experience stands up to the word of God. And God said, don't worship those, those false idols. Don't be in Egypt. Uh, Come to Judah, I will plant you. That's the word of God. That is what must override all experience. So Jeremiah talks to the people one more time. Verse 20, that the men, the women, and all the people had given that answer. And he says, the incense that you burned in the cities of Jerusalem, or sorry, in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem, you and your fathers, your kings and your princes and the people of the land, Did not the Lord remember them and did it not come to his mind? So as if to say, uh, you may wonder, why were you able to offer all this incense and God not do anything? He remembered it. It was on his mind. And finally, the Lord could no longer bear it because of the evil of your doings and because of the abominations which you committed. Therefore, your land is a desolation, an astonishment, a curse and without an inhabitant as it is this day. Because you have burned incense and because you have sinned against the Lord and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord or walked in his law and his statutes or in his testimonies. Therefore, this calamity has happened to you um, as at this day. Moreover, Jeremiah said to all the people and to all the women, hear the word of the Lord, all Judah who are in the land of Egypt. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, you and your wives have spoken with your mouths and fulfilled your hands, saying, We will surely keep our vows that we have made to burn incense to the queen of heaven and pour out our drink offerings to her. You will surely keep your vows and perform your vows. Most translations would phrase that a little differently and and say something along the lines of go ahead, keep your vows. Almost sarcastically, as if to say uh, similar to the vows you made in, in chapter 42, right? That whatever God says, whether we like it or not, whether it's pleasing or displeasing, we'll do it. Didn't go so well. They immediately turned away from God. So he's like, oh, yeah, you've made all these vows to the queen of heaven. Go keep those since you're so great at keeping vows. Right. Verse 26. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, all Judah who dwell in the land of Egypt. Behold, I have sworn by my great name, says the Lord, that my name shall no no more be named in the mouth of any man of Judah. In all the land of Egypt, saying, the Lord God lives. 
Behold, I will watch over them for adversity and not for good. And all the men of Judah who are in the land of Egypt shall be consumed by the sword and by famine until there is an end to them. Yet a small number who escape the sword shall return from the land of Egypt to the land of Judah. And all the remnant of Judah who have gone to the land of Egypt to dwell there shall know whose words will stand, mine or theirs. And this shall be a sign to you, says the Lord, that I will punish you in this place, that you may know that my words will surely stand against you for adversity. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will give Pharaoh, Hophra, king of Egypt, into the hand of his enemies and into the hand of those who seek his life, as I gave Zedekiah, king of Judah, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, his enemy who sought his life. So despite their blatant escalating rebellion, God's warning, God's judgment is still mingled with grace. In verse 28, he says, yet a small number who escape shall return from the land of Egypt. In verse 29, this shall be a sign to you that you may know that my words surely stand. So God is still, even in this punishment and, and in his follow through on the things that he has said, the purpose is to demonstrate that he is God, to demonstrate truth and to, to redeem and to bring those people back to Judah despite their rebellion. So as we close real quick, just a few things that I want to consider the principles in this story are few of them. We've, we know that there's a way that seems right to a man, it says in Proverbs, right? And the people of Israel thought they had it figured out. They were on the way to Egypt. I don't know what stopped them and made them ask Jeremiah to, to go to the Lord. Uh, maybe there were a few among them that suggested that. Um, maybe Jeremiah suggested it. But they already had their minds set on what they were going to do. They knew uh, where they were going to go. And we know the rest of that verse, right? There's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death or destruction. Instead, right? Instead of, uh, of, of the way that seems right to us and charging forward with our plans, Proverbs says that in all of your ways and everything you do, you should acknowledge God. And he will direct your paths. That's not an afterthought. It's not... Plot the course, start the journey, and then acknowledge God, right? Acknowledging God first, and he will direct your paths. And how often is that what we do? I know that's what I do a lot. You can ask my wife if I make extremely like extravagant plans that reach 80 years into the future and plot my course, and if this happens, I'll do this, and if this happens, I'll do this, and if this happens, I'll do that, and let's pray about it. So do we decide and then ask, right? God wants us to be diligent. Again, I think in Proverbs it says the plans of the diligent um, are blessed or, or something very close to that, that, that we should be planning, we should be diligent, we should be strategic with our life, but not to the neglect and not to, the, to make God an afterthought, to acknowledge him and let him direct those paths. And what causes us to seek the Lord? Is it that acknowledgement? Is it that, that uh, beforehand knowing that the first thing we should do is seek the Lord and then everything else will be added to us, right? Matthew 6, that seek 
first the kingdom of God and everything else will be added to you. I think the best uh, health plan, the best career plan, um, whatever your goal, the best plan is Matthew 6.33. To first seek God and everything will be added to you. And that's hard for all of us. It's really hard for me. I want to go out and make my plans and I have my strategies and I have my steps. But to seek the kingdom first, everything that you need will be added to you. Or are we sometimes motivated to seek the Lord, not in in acknowledgement beforehand, but out of guilt? Maybe we've already started on our way to Egypt or started on our, our path and we realize I should have sought the Lord first. Or maybe we're anxious or maybe we've explained our plans to someone and they said, did you seek the Lord? So we have to keep up appearances and we go to seek the Lord. And do we have more faith in God or in our ministers and those around us? Do we fall into the trap of, of uh, the us and them in, in, in the body where we have, we have our elders and we have our ministers and the, the, the high profile Christians, right? And we ask them for prayer. And, oh, can you pray for this? And can you do this? That's great. We're supposed to pray for one another. But not with an attitude of, can you pray to your God? For me, he and I aren't really on good terms right now, but you guys, I'm sure you're doing great. So can you pray to God for me? I've had unbelievers do that to me, and I'm not always sure how to respond. They tell me, oh, you're a Christian, right? Can you pray for this? I can, but it's kind of a, a difficult situation um, when they say, can you pray to God? He won't, sometimes they admit he, oh, he's not going to listen to me, but can you pray on behalf of me. Are we afraid to approach the Lord? How is our relationship with God? Are we in a situation where we can call him our God and confidently come to him? Does that mean we've been living righteously enough to approach God? No. It means that we've been acknowledging God. When we acknowledge God first... You don't have to go through guilt and the anxiety and keeping up appearances. If you've been acknowledging God step by step and acknowledging him first, then we can call him our God confidently, comfortably. We can approach that throne with boldness. Now, not to be too, uh, too much stretch an analogy too much, but how much do we try to leave uh, God's Judah in our lives and go back to Egypt, right? Egypt was the place of slavery that the Egypt, uh, that the Israelites had been delivered from. God took them out of Egypt, out of slavery and out of that bondage and gave them this promised land and put them in this place. And even the whole journey there, they were complaining. Oh, why'd you take us out of Egypt? At least we had a decent meal there. Oh, why'd you take us out of Egypt? At least we had water, right? And now they're in Judah. A couple bad things happen. They're like, let's go back to Egypt. Let's get out of here. And for us, right, that bondage, that slavery is our sin and is our flesh and is our life apart from Christ. And maybe some of us have or remember a time when we, if if you know Christ as your Savior, maybe when you first came to Christ, things got hard. It didn't seem to get easier. They got tougher. And sometimes you may think, well, it was easier before. I don't want to go back. This doesn't seem to be working out. 
But again, that's that's very similar to the whole uh, offerings to the queen of heaven. Right. They said this doesn't seem to be going our way. We're going to go back to Egypt, back into the, the land that had us in slavery and in bondage. And do we walk by faith or by sight? Again, do we stand on the word of God? And what he says in this completed book that, that gives us everything we need or do we based on that's we have the word of god yes but this bad thing happened to me and that's kind of like the bible so i'm gonna rely on that that doesn't make any sense to walk by faith trusting in the word of god that it supersedes the the things that happen in our life and the things that seem to be that we perceive to be negative doesn't stand up to truth and then finally the people pretended, they feigned to seek the Lord's will, but they already had a decision in mind. I do this a lot, so I'm talking to me too. Are we waiting on God's will? A lot of times people say, I'm not sure what to do. I don't know what I should do. I'm just waiting for God to tell me. Are we waiting on God's will or are we waiting on God's will to change? Right? A lot of times people say, This is what I want to do, and I've been praying about it for years. And he just hasn't done it yet, right? Well, one of you needs to change. And there's no shadow of change in God. So are we waiting to, are we really waiting to hear God's will, or are we waiting on God's will to change? 2 Peter 1 3 says that we already have everything pertaining to life and godliness in the Word. Maybe sometimes we're, we're choosing between two good paths and we aren't sure which one God wants us to go on. But there's never an excuse for disobedience or inaction unless it's, the inaction is uh, commanded in the word of God. There's never an excuse for disobedience because we're waiting on God. We have everything in the completion.